That's what you now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Prepare to get caffeinated. So how do you uh, pronounce your name? Is it Josh or... Yes, it's Josh. Oh. Josh Joshua. <laughs> Joshua. Yeah. Is that uh is that Cherokee? Is that is <laughs> yeah. that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh how do you are how do you pronounce your name? Is it is it Andy? Is it Stumpf? Yes, Stumpf. Uh the owner of yeah. Black Rifle Coffee. Yeah, exactly. Uh just so everybody's listening, make sure that you direct all hate mail towards the true CEO of Black Rifle Coffee, Andy Stumpf. Uh he's got a podcast called Cleared Hot. But uh yeah, you can go ahead and meme him for the next uh yeah. couple weeks. That'd be great. Yeah, I, yeah. I wore my Cleared Hot podcast shirt. I figured since yeah, I was going to be talking to the owner of Black Rifle Coffee today, <laughs> Andy. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is, this is a good start, man. Yeah. This, is a, this is a good start. I'm yeah. glad to have you. Uh, so, Montana Knife Company, mm-hmm. what do you guys make? Um, we make uh, spoons that identify as knives. <laughs> uh, yeah, we make, uh, make knives. Um, I, I've been a custom knife maker kind of forever, but uh, I launched the production brand of knives montana knife company last year right and it's just kind of exploded so yeah it's pretty cool well uh a few things that i knew about you and didn't know about you which is you know quite a lot mm-hmm. i would imagine uh one lucas i believe is telling me were you the youngest uh to have a in You'll have to explain this. So yeah. what, what's the age and the certificate or the type of, uh, um, what is it? Master? Yeah, master, yeah, master bladesmith. There so I, I mean, kind of going back a little bit, I started making knives when I was 11. Um, right. My little league baseball coach started teaching me, uh, Rick Dunkerley. Um, and I was just a typical kid in Montana, uh, loved hunting and fishing and all that, mm-hmm. everything. And he would bring his hunting knives to practice and show the, the other dads and, you know, as a kid, I was just, I thought they were awesome. So my parents bought me one and he started teaching me and, uh, I kind of took to it. I mean, whether he wanted me to come to a shop or not, I kind of kept inviting myself. Right. It kind of took off. So I, um, I joined the American Bladesmith Society when I was 12, I think 13. And you, you have to be a member two years before you can test okay for a certification of any level. Right. And so at 15, I tested for and became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world. And then you have to be a journeyman for at least two years. Um, I was a journeyman for about four years and I became a master smith at, at 19. Is that the youngest? It is, yeah. yeah. And I, I feel a little, a little awkward sometimes about it. I mean, it's definitely, it's a cool accomplishment, but to be like, I don't consider my myself a master of anything, even at this age, right. definitely at 19. Like what are you really a master of anything at mm. 19? So, um, I definitely, I passed the test and I, and I accomplished those goals, but really that's when like still the learning just began, you know? Um, it's, uh, it's just something I, 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 and you see sometimes makers get that, they get that level and they're like, all right, I'm good. I'm done. I'm done learning. I'm a master. But for me, I, I actually changed a lot of my processes and a lot of what I do 
a couple of years later when I met some other makers that were super accomplished and, you know, Tim Hancock, who's passed away, he, you know, he was like, Hey, we need to change some things you're doing here. And even today, like I'm constantly, you know, whether it's from Lucas or anybody, I don't care what level knife maker, um, if there's a better way to do something, I'm all ears, you know. Well, it's interesting to me because you uh, you started at such a young age. Uh, so at 11, mm-hmm. did you know this was something that you were going to be doing for the rest of your life? I mean, I felt like it at that point. I, right. it, it was something that just triggered with me. And I, I was making knives before school, after school. Um, and this definitely wasn't a case of you know, I made a couple knives in Rick's shop. And then he was like, if you really want to do this, you got to kind of do it on your own. And so I had a lawn mowing business and my parents also, they still own a construction business where we had backhoes and excavators and all that. Mm -hmm. And so I would make money in my lawn mowing business. And then uh, like I bought my first belt grinder and I started buying equipment and my dad had a spot for me in his shop and he's pretty clean, pretty detailed. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm in there fogging the shop up with my belt grinder, grinding wood and steel. And he's like, okay, we need to get you the hell out of my shop. So he enclosed a little lean-to machine shed, just a spot in there for me. And we moved my stuff out there. And it's kind of funny. There's pictures of me grinding in my little coverall, uh, Carhartt coveralls, you know. And he put a, um, a milk crate in there. He built my grinder bench level at the height that he thought I would be at someday. Right. And uh and then I stood on a milk crate for the next two or three years making <laughs> knives. <laughs> but you know, it it's one of those things like um I don't know, sometimes people it, it seems like, oh, you're lucky to be where you're at or whatever. And it's like, look, man, I was I wasn't going to parties. I wasn't doing a lot of things like I was in my knife shop freaking grinding knives. I mean, I was working it's one thing I'll say for myself, like I, I worked hard as a kid at getting better. And honestly, the you you don't get to to a high level of anything, especially that young, without a lot of help. So I had a lot of mentors at times frustrated. I wanted to quit. Right. Cause I would show my knives to Rick or to other makers. You know, I remember Tim Hancock. I mean, I was a master smith as you know, 21 years old, and I'd bring a knife to the Atlanta Blade Show. And uh, I was really close with a lot of older guys and I would actually room with them at these... And I just... I would soak their brains right out of their head, you know, asking them questions. And I'd hand like Tim a knife that I thought was really good. And he'd be like, yeah, I don't like it. And then he would just tear it apart and be like, you know, this could be better and you should have done this. And why did you do this? And instead of getting frustrated or pissed off, I would just go back and like, I'm going to show him or I'm going to I'm gonna do better, you right. know. But as a kid, that was hard. I remember several times like tell my mom I quit. I'm, you know, really? crying and yeah, just frustrated because like you think like you just made the greatest knife. And looking right. back on it now, it's like, yeah, they should have ripped it apart. Right. You know. So it's funny when I went to my first knife show, uh, Eugene, Oregon, I was 13. We left and uh we got in the car and we got to the end of the driveway. And Rick Dunker Lee and some other guys, Barry Gallagher, these guys we were in an old like um Chrysler or New Yorker or some big boat car, you know, and I'm in the back seat. And uh, Rick gets, we get to the end of my parents' driveway and Rick turns around to me and says, your parents think I'm a respectable fucking human? And he goes, and we're going to keep it that way. So anything you hear in this car stays in this car. <laughs> <laughs> and it was cool because we went to the Eugene show and I actually didn't even have a ride home. Like they were staying out there and Rick's like, we'll find him a ride. And uh, this guy, Wade Coulter, 
long hair down to his waist, kind of a looked like a hippie guy or whatever. He worked at a power plant in Colstrip, Montana, making knives. Great human. But at the time, yeah, I didn't, we didn't know him. Right. And uh, Rick asked him if I could ride home with him. And uh, I called my mom and I'm like, I found a ride home. He's got long hair and an earring, but he's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was a cool time for sure. And I see a lot of parents these days overprotective, you know, not, right. you know, like, Think about that. We didn't have cell phones. I mean, my mm. parents kicked me loose. And I mean, I called them probably twice from Oregon from the hotel room. Right. And the rest of the time, I was just in the, you know, across the country doing what I was doing. And I, I think more people with, with kids need to, to try to get them more experiences. Take them to somebody who welds or grinds or, you know, does whatever, plumber. Or, and t- let them learn a trade. But let them... Let them you know, trust them to kids. Kids can be pretty responsible, right? You know, and my parents use it against me. You know, if I was going to potentially get in trouble, they were. My dad was like, you know, I'll lock your shop, and I, and <laughs> I, I didn't want that to happen, so I stayed pretty straight and narrow. You know, well, when you were in your teens and you were making knives, were you selling those to other people in high school or you know, junior high and high school? Where where were you selling them? Were you just making them to make them? No, I I. My first couple knives, I kept my first knife. I still have it. But my second and third knives, I sold to my science teacher and my math teacher. Really? <laughs> yeah. I did a little heat treating of steel science fair project. And right. I brought a couple finished knives. I sold them for 20 bucks. They bought them. And uh, it's funny, both of those people ended up giving them back to me 20 years later. Really? Yeah. It's kind of cool. But uh, um, no, I started selling knives kind of locally. And then I went to that show. Yeah. And then every year from there on out, I... I mean, as a kid, I went to the Atlanta Blade Show every year. I went to Oregon. Um, when I was in high school, I started going to the New York City Show in Times Square. Wow. Um, so I was selling knives. And then Blade Magazine was really good to me. The editor of Blade, Steve Shackelford, he... You know, I had a lot of coverage as a kid, especially right. when I started, you know, testing for these different levels. When I was 15, you know, I was in the cover of Blade Magazine and all these different things. And so it's cool because like, I was getting letters from Europe, you know, from yeah. London and letters from all over the country of people ordering knives from this kid. And honestly, it got overwhelming. Like, I, really? Yeah. When I was probably a senior in high school, I kind of had to just like scrap the order list and say, it. it's hard because it's exciting. But mm-hmm. if you get, um, Lucas and I've talked about this, if you get a thousand orders for the knife you're making today, how do you get better for tomorrow? Right. So like, you got to be able to progress. And I had some good advice from guys of like, you're you're 18 or you're 17. Like, forget those orders. Like, it's nice that they ordered them, but restructure it and try to sell knives. Like, hey, call them and say, okay, your name's up. Here's what I'm making today. You know, or or make knives and sell them. But make, like, try to push yourself outside your box. Mm-hmm. You know, make something different and try things, you know. Otherwise, you just get stuck in a rut. How many knives do you think you made by the time you graduated high school? Um, I'm sure I made at least a couple hundred. Really? Yeah. Because back then, those knives are pretty easy to make. They were simple little yeah. three-piece knives. Um, it's interesting. The knives that I was making back then are somewhat similar in style to the knives that we're making with Montana Knife Company, where they're, mm. they're a simple, um, just strong, good-using knife. I mean, my knives back then weren't as, as well-constructed. I mean, I was right. learning. But no bells and whistles. It's not about a bunch of fluffy shit. You know, it's like this knife's made to use. Mm-hmm. 
um, as I progressed, I, I really went towards the art knife part of it for years. Like I was, how, how good can I get? And I had all these mentors that were incredibly talented. Um, and so I was pushing myself, you know, using, you know, 18 karat gold and fossilized ivories and all, you know, learning carving and all these different things. So, Mm -hmm. um, I was really trying to push myself to a high level, but that's a hard, it is a hard way to make a living. Cause when you're making one knife at a time, if you work on it for three weeks and you screw it up, like you, that you lose that income. Right. You know, um, I was full time for about 10 years in my twenties or so and thirties. And, uh, it's a, it's a hard way to raise a family. Cause if you're not, if you know, if you go hunting for a week, you don't make money for a week. Yeah. You know, well, but you had another, didn't you have another job? I did after after I was full time for about ten years. That that oh eight time frame hit with the uh, with the markets, and it's right. like if you listen to the news that you know we're headed into a depression and right. it's into the world. I had four young kids, and it was kind of one of those you know selfishly I just wanted to keep making knives, right? But as a you know family guy, it's like okay, what's what's best for the family? And and honestly, five thousand dollar knives are the first thing to leave a budget, right? <laughs> Yeah. And so I had a couple year backlog and I would call people and say, Hey, I'm about ready to start your knife. And they're like, well, I just kind of want to wait a little while to see what this right. market does. And it's like, holy shit, this is kind of fragile. Yeah. Like overnight, it felt like. And so I, I had an opportunity to take a job through a friend of mine. He kind of helped me get on just actually operating backhoe for a local power company. Mm-hmm. And I got that job, went to work there. And then I quickly trans- transferred over to the electric side. And um, in the end, I ended up doing an apprenticeship and became a journeyman lineman for the power company working on power lines. So. How long did that take? That process is a three-year apprenticeship. Right. So I was there for probably five years. You know, I was initially just kind of a grunt. Right. And then got an apprenticeship and went through that and became a journeyman. So you were doing that, but you're, you had you had to have been making knives too, like in the evenings and the mornings, right? I because- was, yeah. And, you know, I ended up, kind of in that time frame, got a divorce. And so I was kind of doing the full-time dad, four-kid thing. And mm-hmm. honestly, Knives took a little bit of a backseat. But forever, I had this idea of this production company I wanted mm-hmm. to own. So when I was 19, I actually purchased the, uh, you know, through the state or registered the name Montana Knife Company. Really? So f- from the time I was 19 to last year, right. like I had this idea of what I wanted to do. But I knew timing-wise you know, financially, personally, like a lot of different things that it wasn't right yet. Right. Um, so when I was doing the f- kind of single dad thing and whatnot, you know, we, we split our kids half, half time. So when I didn't have the kids, obviously I was able to do a little more knife work. But uh, when I'm really where things change is when I met my, my current, my new wife. Um, when I met Jess, like all of a sudden she was incredibly supportive and right away she started pushing like, you need to get back into making knives. And I kind of as a, a little bit of a jump back into it, like as a, like, hey, I'm back. I, I went and did that TV show, Forged and Fire. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, <clears throat> before you start on that, how did you, did you get the call for that? Did you call them? Like, how did that entire thing happen? Originally, I got called to ask if I wanted to be a judge on it. And oh, okay. I was like, no, I can't spend th- three or four or six months a year in New York, you right. know? And also, I'm pretty protective of my craft of knife making, and I didn't want to be part of any bullshit thing that made knife makers look like clowns. Or right. I'm like, eh, we'll see what this is all about. 
Um, and not that I was maybe going to... They were going to try different guys out for being a judge. It's not like I was the only pick, but right. I was in the mix. And so I saw the first season and they represented the craft pretty well. There's little things that, you know, always you'd like to see it done a little better, but it's pretty right. good. And so I always tell my kids not to be afraid of a challenge. Right. And there's a lot of knife makers out there that are like, you know, fuck that show. That's, a, you know, it's bullshit, blah, 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 blah. Like, but a lot of it is, is honestly, I think people are afraid to fail in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're putting yourself out there. And I consider myself, you know, it's not just like a little hobby craft thing. Like I consider myself a professional, mm-hmm. like a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or whatever. Like I'm a professional in my craft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to represent knife making that way. And I saw some stuff going on in that show. And it's like, I think I can go on there and represent pretty well. And number two, I don't want to ever... I want to look at my kids and be able to say, I accepted the challenge and wasn't afraid of failing. Right. And uh, I went on there and did pretty well. Um, I made the finals um, both times I was on there. I didn't win either time. Um, I think the first time was kind of debatable. But the second time, you know, I just... I got short on time and my heat treat, my edge chipped on the very last test. But... You know, that's the part of it. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you have five days to make something. And I made two incredible swords in five days and pushed as much time into those as I could and just got a little short on time on the last one. But um, still, if you look at what I built, it was pretty cool. Yeah, we were going through that uh, book that you had up at TAC. And that, that was the first time I'd really taken a look at what you built. It's incredible that you can do that in five days. I didn't understand that you could only work, was it eight hours a day on the show? Yeah. I didn't realize there was a time restraint either, uh, which you and I were both talking about it. And you're like, yeah, going in, I was like, I'll work like 16 hour days. I'll bust this thing out. Right. But it makes sense now that we had that conversation that they have to put a time cap because they have to equalize the playing field. Right. Or people would just probably work yeah, some old 24 guy hours a day. can't do more than 10 hours and the next the next guy's doing 22 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the camera crew, I mean, they have to sleep too, so... Right. Um, but yeah. you were on there twice. How how long in between the first and the second time that you were on it? Probably, I mean, basically a year. It was, <laughs> it was more like... They called pretty quickly after. It was right. probably six months or something like that. But um, it was a good experience. Um, it, and... It's cool because like on the second one I met, I went, I went against Mareko Malmasi. Mm-hmm. He's a chef's knife maker oh, out yeah. of Washington. He's, um, and he's become one of my really great friends. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. That guy's incredible too. Yeah. Like he is. Yeah. Mareko's yeah. awesome. So, um, and we became, you know, close. I talked to him often and, um, there's some things I haven't announced yet, but like, he's going to be kind of involved with helping us with MKC, oh, brought wow. him on. So we, we haven't actually put anything out there about that, but that's going to be cool. So that's what's cool about the knife making craft is um, everyone's so tight. It's such mm-hmm. a tight knit group, especially back when I was coming up, there was no internet. Right. You know, I, you know, so if you wanted to learn something, you had to go to somebody's shop. <laughs> right. There was no YouTube. Right. Like I traveled when I was 14. Yeah. 14. I, I went from Montana to South Carolina, flew standby and flew standby across the country with no cell phone to visit George Heron for a week in a shop who was an old legend of a knife maker. He was probably 70 at the time. I spent a week with him and flew back home just to go learn, you know? And I, that's kind of that whole part of like, as parents, my parents just trusted me where I was responsible and they're like, yeah, go learn. It's a great experience. 
you know, and um, I don't think they heard from me until I got to South Carolina. I was bumped on like every every connection. I was bumped at least once sitting in the airports, you know. At 14, just yeah. cruising across the United States. I, I don't think my dad would have trusted me to do that. I'd steal <laughs> his cars at 14. Yeah. <laughs> Take yeah. him on joy rides. He definitely would be like, yeah, yeah you're not going anywhere. You're going to end up like yeah, hurting yourself. Yeah. So did people, when you're, when you're in junior high and high school, because you're doing so much of this, where did people just look at you like you were a nerd or was it? Yeah. Like- I think, I think a few kids probably thought it was kind of cool, but mostly, uh, yeah, I feel like I definitely got a lot of shit about it. Like, Oh, you're building your stupid knives again this weekend. Like, <laughs> why don't you come to, right. you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to be in my shop. And so I, I don't feel like I had a lot of, a lot of support from peers really when I was in school, it became cooler. Like after I graduated, you know, as people get older, they realize what you were doing and how cool it actually was. And then they probably started coming back to you going, dude, can I get one of those? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That there was definitely some of that for sure. Yeah. I, one of my really close friends, he used to make, um, uh, antler art, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we would always be like, dude, because he'd go out and shed hunt all the time. And we're like, dude, why are you shed hunting? And then once he told me how much money he could get from sheds, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. like, I get it now. Okay, I got it. You're, yeah. I understand why you're shed hunting. But yeah, when you don't understand at that age, you're like, what the fuck are you doing walking around in the mountains picking up sheds? He was like, oh, yep. you know, I want to track the elk. I want to see what's going on with the whitetail. I want to be able to build stuff. And oh, by the way, we make a lot of money doing this. Right. And every year, you know, you'd have, and I'm sure you guys have them in Montana, you know, they'd have stations at like grocery stores and a few of those where they would mm-hmm. buy sheds. Yep. They'd have all this, you know, like a... They still do it. Still do it. Yeah. 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 Here, not so much. I haven't seen one in Utah, but they still yeah. do it. Yeah, it was, and you know, I'll be honest, like at that age too, I was motivated by money, right? Like in the be- when I was a kid and I got 20 bucks for an yeah. like, sweet, I made money at something I like to do. Right. And then I remember, you know, like uh, the knife I made when I first got $100 for a knife and then 200 I remember one when I got 400 a collector in Oregon, I still remember the knife. Like, you know, there were those different stages on up to, you know, a sword when I finally got, you know, I got 30 grand for a sword. You know, yeah. So it's like, but it's always been just steps of like improvement and improvement. And can you um, can you tell me what's the most expensive sword or knife you've ever sold? Would you you disclose that? Yeah, I mean, it was that sword. Was it a couple of those swords were thirty? Yeah, it was thirty seven grand. That is crazy. Yeah. Where? And I mean, can you tell me who you sold them to? Not the exact person, but do they stay in the States? Do they go overseas? That, that one went overseas to yeah. United Arab Emirates. Okay. And it was that was a really cool experience because I had just bought the place that I live in now. That place was a total shithole. Beautiful right. piece of property, but weeds everywhere. No road into it. Like my dad and I built a road into it. And it was like a diamond in the rough, that right. property, which now it's gorgeous. But I was out building fence and I had a backhoe out there and I was pounding fence posts and I get a call from this guy in England. And he's like, my sword would like you to, or my friend would like you to build a sword. And I was like, no, I don't make swords, you know? And he's like, well, he really likes your Damascus. Can you send us some samples? And I was like, well, maybe. And so then he emailed a couple of times and he's like, can you send us some samples? And I was like, sure. And I was totally kind of blowing it off. And, and then finally, like a week before I was supposed to have him these samples of steel, I was building fence and just right. doing my thing. He calls me one day and he goes, 
can you just bring those samples here? And I was like, where? And he goes, London. And I was like, when? And he goes, Tuesday. <laughs> and I was like, um, all right, uh, maybe. And so sure enough, they bought me a first class ticket to London in five days. <laughs> so I mean, I like shut the back off and like started forging my ass off. And I'm like, holy shit, you know? And so as it turns out, I he flew me to London and I met, um, you know, he's a sheikh in, in, in Abu Dhabi and actually super nice guy in his thirties and, um, super regular guy. Like I met him cause I'm like, I'm meeting some Royal guy. Like, I don't even know what I'm, how I'm supposed to act, but I'm like, right. I'm not going to bow. <laughs> That's one thing I remember. Like I'm not bound to this guy. And, uh, but he was super cool. We talked about hunting. He loves to hunt. He's right. like all bummed out. He'd love to hunt Alaska and, but he can't like get tags or whatever. And we right. just talked normal stuff. And, um, and then I built that first sword and then he flew me to Abu Dhabi to deliver it as a guest at a hunting show that they put on where they, That's cool. um, they had falcons flying everywhere. It was like a giant like safari club show in right. Abu Dhabi. And then he flew me to Istanbul, Turkey to look at a sword in the Topkapi Palace. Wanted me to build that. And, so what, uh, what was the sword? Um, the, the, the one that I looked at in uh, the Wallace collection in London was a Kilij. It's, uh just a style of a sword. It's got a real upswept blade with mm -hmm. a, a thick T on the spine. And it was made back in the like 1700s for battling on horseback. Okay. And when you would strike somebody on horseback, that, that upswept blade would allow basically um, like the person to like slide off the sword where it wouldn't rip your sword out of your hand. Oh, gotcha. Those guys were savages. You think yeah. about back in the 1600s and 1700s and like the armor and... Like when I was in the Wallace collection in London and looking at all that stuff, or if you go to the Metropolitan in New York and you see what those people were wearing into battle, like it doesn't seem possible to fight in some of that. It's mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. I always watch those, uh, you know, a movie or television show where they have scenes from the supposedly the, the Crusades and you're like, dude there is no way you would be able to fight like that in a suit of armor with a sword that weighs... Yeah. I mean, some of those swords were... Those broadswords were... They were huge. They were huge. Heavy. Yeah. And you see them like throwing them around. And, you're and like, the people were little. <laughs> they were tiny. Like when you they see... They were like malnourished and like... Yeah. And when you see <laughs> the suits of armor, they're like for little, little people. Yeah. You know, and it's like... It makes you wonder like, God, were they kids? I mean, it's crazy. Um... Yeah, no. And I, it makes me wonder how many of the actual, you know, people on the front lines were actually wearing the armor and how many of the those suits of armor you see that were built were just for the guys in the back watching shit happen, you know? Probably that, right? Where Because if, if you had armor, that meant you were important enough yeah. to have it. Yeah. And, you know, people at that point in time, I think they were more expendable at times, or at mm -hmm. least psychologically, they were more expendable. So I'm sure you'd have your fodder at the front lines and you'd have more important people and then armor would eventually encroach, you know, as, as history progresses towards the front line. But if you're going to take ground, you have to be mobile. Right. So some of that, I'm, I'm like, man, you, you, you just would not be mobile no. Wearing that much, swinging a heavy sword. It's completely right. inaccurate. 
especially when you're five five five. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you're, you're swinging yeah, and you've around. You've just marched eight hundred miles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah. you wouldn't be marching in it either. That's the no. other thing that I kept. You know, when when we're talking about historical inaccuracies, like, they're just marching from like Paris to Jerusalem in their armor. And, yeah. No, they would yeah. never. No. They wouldn't be doing that. No. Yeah. No, it's. But when you do look at those suits of armor in there, the ones that are the most ornate, I look at it from a craftsman level. Oh, yeah. Those people had to have worked on that stuff for years. Or like you are a dedicated, you're making the suit of armor for this guy. Right. And maybe it was generations. Like, I don't know. You know, you read different stuff about like families that made, like this guy made armor, his son made armor, his son made armor. Yeah. but you see the the level of craftsmanship when you go into like that Topkapi Palace in in Istanbul, Turkey. It's mind boggling what those people created back then. So, do you know the history of uh, like sword and blade making? I'm like, not. Can you give me a summary? I'm of- not really. I'm really not as much of a historian as I probably should be with what I right. do. But I just don't. I've just not read enough or, or, or know enough. I, I like to look at the stuff and I, it's, mm. I, I wasn't really interested in swords and a lot of that stuff when I was a kid, I was just interested in making what I was making Yeah. as I've gotten older. And especially when I was doing that project and I actually went to like, I didn't know a lot of that stuff existed, Right. you know, cause again, we didn't have internet. Yeah. And when I, when I went and did that project, I'd probably had a cell phone for two years. Right. And, uh, I walked into some of those museums like when i remember the first time i went to the metropolitan in new york and went to the arms and armor section and it was just mind-boggling really you could spend just a solid week in there and not see it all it's mind-boggling um just that section of that museum Um, do you look at some of the craftsmanship from um hundreds of years ago and think how did they do that it's i I have no idea really like you don't even see a lot of that stuff being built today. Like mm. there's almost nobody that could afford it or the people in our society right now that could afford it don't have any interest in paying for that to be built. But I mean, right. we're talking stuff that even today a craftsman would take years to do. Really? Like, I don't know how, you know, and I have, we have belt grinders and yeah. air air tools and gravers and all this stuff. And they're doing like all the engraving with freaking chisel and a hammer, you right. know, gravers and a hammer, like... And we have, you know, graver air maxes that just, you know, and take right. carved lines. So um, that's probably the number one thing I think when I see that stuff is, I don't know how they did that. You know, um, there's so much cool history, whether it's the samurai stuff or or mm-hmm. like Sheffield, England. And the fact that they were running, you know, big stone wheels off of a belt that was driven by a wheel in the stream out back. Right. Like the ingenuity of how they powered or even um in Sheffield how they powered their hammers with water wheels in the in the stream out back like you know with belts running through the ceilings and right. I'd love to go see all that someday I know some of that stuff's still set up where you can go see how it was all done but um so I don't I don't know as much history as I'd like to Boy, and there's a lot of myth and kind of lore yeah. like with Damascus steel for example that's kind of where I'm getting to is like the the myths associated with regions and how things are made and what's actually superior quality. Right. Because if you travel around the Middle East, anywhere you go, you know, the the Saudi Arabians or, you know, the Kuwaitis or whomever, they'll be like, this is the best blade. And you're like, yep. 
okay, dude, I've heard that from every one of you guys. Like, right. <laughs> you all have the best blade, yeah. you know? And it's like, Japanese are going to be partial to, you know, Japanese steel, yeah. sword making, knife making. So tell me some of the, the, the myths that you know of that are out there associated with, you know, uh, blades that you've heard over the years that you know you can just like, totally debunk. Yeah, I think some of it, a lot of it boils down to like the Damascus steel and the samurais and the whole, you know, I think that, you know, from a lot of what I've been told, they thought the more that you forged and folded a piece of steel, the stronger it got. So, right. you know, I'll have people all the time come up and be like, how many layers is in that? And if you're like, oh, there's 200 layers. Oh, well, you know, I saw swords that had 2000 layers and they're way stronger. And it's like, well, actually, it's all just steel. Right. Like metallurgically, we know it's it's the alloys in the steel. It's what makes up that steel. It's how it's heat treated. It's not... In fact, if you forge on a blade too long and you do too much forging, as you're forging, you're burning carbon out of the steel. Mm-hmm. So you're actually starting to deplete that steel. Um, so just because it's a Damascus blade doesn't mean it's stronger. Mm. Um, in fact, if you don't do it right, there's a good chance it could be weaker if, you don't, if you're not welding it well. Right. You know, um, but it's... Damascus is really more done for the beauty of the blade and, and right. the art form of it. Um, and forging in general, you know, there's a there, back in the 90s, man, like the American Bladesmith Society and then you had the Knife Makers Guild. Well, the guild were all guys who stock removed, just ground their blades out. And then you had the forging guys in the American Bladesmith Society. And there were certain people in those that just, you know, all oh, those Knife Makers Guild guys and their shit soulless ground blades, you know, and like they're terrible and these forged blades are so much better. It, 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 forging is really, it's fun to do. It's exciting. It adds a level to the craft and kind of puts like your own soul into that steel. But really, like I said, when I did a demo the other night, you're taking a bar of steel that maybe is an inch wide and you can make a blade that's an inch and three quarters wide and curved. It's more of a, of a way to utilize steel that otherwise mm-hmm. you'd have to buy a piece of steel three or four inches wide and grind it and cut it all away. Gotcha. So it's more, the forging is done more in my, in my case to utilize, if I make a really beautiful piece of Damascus, I don't want to turn that all into dust and put it on the floor of my shop. Right. I can forge a blade out and then maybe because I save that much material, I get another blade out of that same piece of steel. Right. I get two knives. Um. But it's really more about how you heat treat. So that with the samurai stuff and a lot of the Damascus kind of folklore, you know, I I don't know. It was probably a real hit and miss too. You probably had a swordsmith in one town that really had a process dialed in. Right. That he was making killer stuff. And the next guy over, you know, was quenching it in goat blood and thought he had a real thing going on. And they were, maybe they were shit. You know, I don't know. <laughs> right. So right. it's hard to say. Well, it's um, an interesting. Uh, because I hear, um, based on region, these this is the best, you know, I've heard this all the time, like these are the best sword makers, these are the best knife makers. What I've realized is, you know, as I get older in life, anytime people say that they're the best, it's typically like that sign in a, in a diner shop that says the best the best coffee in the world or whatever. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. yeah, everybody says that shit. Yeah. And the same yeah. with knives, like, you know, I'll have guys like, oh, you're the best knife maker, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, man, there are so many incredible knife makers out there. There's so many guys out there that are better than I am. Like I was, Lucas and I were just talking about this this morning out in the shop before you got here. We were talking about how, you know, I was telling Lucas, most custom knife makers are selling knives. 
They're selling themselves. People mm. are buying knives because they like Lucas right. and his personality and his style. Um, or they're buying mine because they like my story and my mm -hmm. style and me. Um, and the guys that struggle are the guys with no personality that just kind of sit there like a bump on a log. And yeah, you might make a great knife, but you have to be able to sell yourself and, 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 you know, be able to relate to people. And, and I think most knife collectors are collecting the people as much as they are the knives. Well, I would agree with that. I think, I, I think, and I don't know the knife community like, like you obviously, but as a guy that, um, I, I would consider myself a knife aficionado, I guess, to a certain mm -hmm. degree. Um, I think you, I see knives and I'm like, that's, that's really cool. Or that's a piece of history. Um, or I really like that knife maker. So I'm going to buy them. So I think there's a combination of interest there. Yeah, I'm always amazed as to the, the knife community because it's a, it's a very unique subculture of collectors that you guys are, you guys have a very specific kind of subculture mm -hmm. over there. I don't think a lot of people understand how close and tight knit it is. And then two, uh, how expensive knives mm -hmm. are and then people collect them. And there, there's a lot of attention that goes into collecting specific makers when you go to shows, yep. uh, I didn't understand that. One of my really good friends, his name is uh, Tyler Gray. He's a knife head. Mm -hmm. And he was always telling me about knives and like getting me to look at his phone and check this one out. What do you think of this one? I'm like, yeah, dude, it's a knife. Right. <laughs> like, okay, you know, calm down, weirdo. What are you talking about? Or, or they're talking about a knife maker that you supposedly are supposed to know because there's a lot of assumption where right. it's like, it's like people that get into anything. They're, they're like, I really like this director of this movie or I really like this guy. And they kind of assume a lot of things. Mm -hmm. The blade, what, what do you call it? The knife, what do you call it? The knife community? What, mm -hmm. what is it? Is it the knife community? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. the knife making community and the, right. and the collectors. And it's interesting. It's changed a bit because back when I was learning, most of the quote unquote famous knife makers back then were famous because they were fucking good. Right. Now, it's different because with Instagram and whatever, yeah. like just because a guy has 300,000 followers doesn't mean he can make a knife worth a shit. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe he's really great at marketing. Right. You know, or got a name somehow. So it's a little, I think it's a little harder for collectors that are new to sort out like who's popular and who's good. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always match up. And I'm a little protective of you know, there's a lot of legends out there, great knife makers that aren't on Instagram right now that it's kind of interesting back in the early 2000s, they were super popular and now almost nobody knows them. And I'm like, right. man, if you don't know Harvey Dean or if you don't know Larry Fagan or some of these different guys, like as a knife maker, you should educate yourself a little mm -hmm. bit and look at the history. Don Fogg, it's, it's kind of why it's actually the number one reason I started my podcast was I wanted to get some of those old knife makers that I grew up learning from their stories and their history and stuff recorded. So that way, maybe, you know, a lot of these guys are getting older and when they pass on, if there's a new young star of a knife maker yeah. in 10 years and he wants to be like, how did this Damascus come back to the US? Oh, it was Don Fogg and Steve Schwarzer and Jim Schmidt that in, you know, there were tiny pockets in the United States up in the Northeast, down South of three and four and five guys that basically 
like rediscovered and rebirthed Damascus in really? this country. Yeah. And like I did a podcast with Don Fogg. He was like literally one of the first to bring, you know, Damascus steel goes back hundreds of years. Right. And it was lost. And these guys brought it. Was, it was really? Yeah. It was lost. And and it and especially in the US, there was no one doing it. Like mm-hmm. in the 60s, there was nobody doing it. And the, and then in the 70s, these guys started figuring it out. And with some help from a, you know, a metallurgist guy that worked for like just a company, but he, he knew steel. Like they started playing with alloys and figuring out how to make Damascus again. So just a short time ago, like when I, when I, in the nineties, when I was learning, I just happened to be around this amazing group. And we were like Rick and these guys that I was learning from, we were flying these guys like Don Fogg into Montana and paying them to basically do what we called hammer-ins where they would come and teach us. Mm. And the ideas were flowing. Like it was such an exciting time. They called us, um, you know, I was a kid in it, but the guys that were around Montana, they called them the Montana Mafia. And there were articles written about them. And they were, you know, Rick and all these guys were going back and forth with ideas. And instead of like figuring something out and hiding it from them, they would call each other on the phone and be like, dude, try this. I just did this with the steel and it, what happened is it exploded. And so much of what you see in the Damascus world and knife making today came from that time period in the mid to late nineties. Um, but it was born from those guys in the seventies, but those guys are now their seventies and eighties. They're starting to die. And right. Um, it was cool. Cause I'm young enough uh, that hopefully I'll be around a long time to be able to tell people about those people. But I was, I'm old enough that I was, they were still active when I was right. learning. So I'm in a neat kind of middle area there. Well, how is how is Damascus different than... And I understand because of the design, but mm-hmm. what makes the design and how do you actually go through that process? Yeah, it's... Damascus is really two different alloys, at least. At least two different alloys of steel that are combined together. Mm-hmm. And what you do, it's... I, I, inv- I kind of equate it to like red and yellow Play-Doh. And if you yeah. were to alternate layers of that and stack it up in a big pile. Mm-hmm. If it didn't all just smash together, let's say they always stayed separate. If you roll that out and you fold it or you cut it up and restack it and twist it, everything you do to it manipulates those layers. Mm-hmm. And then when you etch that steel, when you grind it off and you put it in acid at the end, the different alloys etch differently. So you'll have one alloy that's high on carbon mm-hmm. and it'll be black. Yep. And the other alloy you use, the, the yellow Play-Doh, is, is high in nickel. And so it's super, it's silver, it's shiny. And so um, it's interesting because you can even, we've gotten it to where I can make a a powder uh, can. I can make a can and I could put BRCC. I could literally glue pieces of steel together and put BRCC in a can and pour powdered steel around that and forge that out and have BRCC in a blade. Really? Yeah, like um, Steve Schwarzer in the in the 90s has an image in a Damascus blade of a bird hunter with a dog on point with <laughs> his up. foot in the air. Seriously? Yes, with shot with with birds flying and a straight uh, shotgun barrel shooting at these birds in steel. It's all steel. It's mind-boggling. Like, that guy was so far and above. It's funny, I see people today like, oh, I came up with this pattern. It's like, that's cool, but I saw Don Fogg do that in the 90s. <laughs> you know, like legends. <laughs> right. You know? That's insane to me yeah, that so a person can do that in, in a piece of steel. Yep. Yeah, you cut out, you know, and it's a little different process. Like you're you're taking steel and you get a wire EDM. Right. And you cut all these plates, you, you cut this image out and then you fill the the area that's missing with powder. Right. 
and of a different alloy. So mm-hmm. now that area that's missing is now black instead of the silver what the silver that it was originally. Right. Um but that takes a really high level of talent and ability to as you start to forge that. We're talking it's in a block that's maybe a three inch square or four right. inch square. And you have to forge and draw that out maybe 20 inches long and keep it square. So if you smash it wrong, it distorts the image. Right. Um yeah, my mind's having a hard time even figuring out how to do that, yeah. how to smash it without distorting the image. Yeah, you got uh, it's cool because if, if you do it with like a BRCC, it doesn't matter as much. If you distort it a little bit, right? Lettering look then now it starts to look like it's written okay. instead of like square uh, and blocky. Right. I got you. Yeah, but if you're doing an image like that, mm-hmm. um, it's it's very slow. You take little bites and you just keep it perfectly square, and you just take that three inch square and you stretch it to a one inch square. <laughs> got it. That makes sense. Um, it's it's pretty technical and but what's cool about the collector world there's people out there that make a lot of money in whatever they do and they have an appreciation for people who do stuff with their hands yeah and create and they're an artist and instead of buying a you know a charlie russell painting for their wall they're buying a knife and they're right. displaying it and and i always say this is one thing I would love to have a Charlie Russell from my wall, by the way. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a big check. Yeah. It's a big <laughs> check. I would love to have that. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, the, the uh, what I always say about knife making, and it's I don't care if you're making production knives or if you're making high end customs, um, knives are one thing that just never get thrown away. No. And I, and I say about, like, especially the customs that we all build, the knife making community. We're literally making future artifacts. Right. Like these, like a lot of the knives I've made, who knows, maybe in a thousand years, there's one in a museum. Right. Like, um, and even with our production knives that are less expensive, a $300 knife, or I have people that come into my shop all the time with a buck knife or a Gerber or some, you know, what I'd say just kind of a plain folding knife with a tip broke off and they want me to fix it and put an edge on it and buff it up because it was grandpa's. Yeah. And I'm going to put it in my safe. And and even myself, I have a handful of knives in my safe that I don't even know where they came from. They're just random factory pocket knives. Mm-hmm. You don't throw those away. And in our world today, like everything's made to throw away. Yeah. There is, everything is, uh, you know, uh, one-time use or expendable. Mm-hmm. I have the first pocket knife my dad ever gave me. Uh, I have my grandpa's case folder, yep. you know, and that the blades are all like ground ground down from usage because they used them as screwdrivers and yep. picking their, you know, nails and, you know, cutting anything and everything. And uh, I mean, I'd never throw those away. I've never. literally had people bring me case pocket knives where all three blades are broke off. Like yeah. grandpa broke one and then just moved to the next. And yep. the third one's broke off and they've asked me to like Rebuild buff up them. the brass bolsters, just buff up the bolsters. And they just want to, they still just display it with like, Three little nubs sticking out of the front of the handle. <laughs> <laughs> but they have, there's that nostalgia. Yeah. You know? I, and that's one of the things, you, especially, I think you and I grew up in a very similar region, right? Like there's things that I'll never forget, uh, regardless of how old I am. Uh, my grandfathers, both of them, and my dad. So they were both loggers. And the, they both, all of them were like 501 shrink to fits. Mm-hmm. And every one of them, I knew there was a pocket knife in their right in their right front pocket. Every one of them. You just described my dad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like my dad wore, you know, white boots, uh, 501 shrink to fit, uh, flannel shirt. And I, there are things that I knew that he always had. One was a Jack toothpick. Pick. <laughs> toothpick. Was a toothpick. 
yep. pocket knife. You know, later, you know, he used to call, he used to carry a crescent wrench with him all the time too, like a little crescent wrench. Mm-hmm. Uh, now he's getting older and he doesn't work on shit all the time. So he doesn't carry a crescent wrench and a pocket knife, but mm-hmm. I know he always still has a pocket knife on him. If I yeah. walk up to him, I'm like, Hey man, let me see your knife. I need to open something. And he's like, okay. Yeah. But growing up, that's every one of them. So it's, it's a piece of your family's history, especially as a kid, you know, knives are one of those things that it's, it's like grandpa trust me with the pocket knife. Right. Or, now I'm kind of like, I'm almost a man. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a big kid, you know, like, yep. you know, my grandpa or my dad. And then if they give it to you, mm-hmm. I took my daughter to get her first knife, um, probably two months ago. So she really wanted a knife. And I was like, okay, like it's, you can have one because I was teaching her how to make fire with a feral rod and do a bunch of other shit. Yeah. But it was a big, it was a, it was a big moment, right? You yeah. take your kids to the, you know, we went to Bass Pro and there you go. Like, take a look. Check it out. Swiss Army knife because, um, you know, the classic children's first knife for me is like yep. the Swiss Army knife because you got a bunch of little tools in there and yep. it's super fun, right? Yep. It's like you got tweezers and, you know, toothpick and a pen, a bunch of stuff. And you also have some blades in there, none of which are really going to hurt you. Yeah. But it gives her a really good starting point to start to learn knife safety. Yeah, you, you know. can... You can she can learn responsibility. Yeah. You can catch her doing some things she probably shouldn't be and be like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, for me, it was like throwing the knife up in the air and see if he'll stick in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, blade first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and but, I had her earn it too, right? Yeah. So she had to earn it. She had to do uh, like a hundred air squats or something like that and then take her mm-hmm. in and uh, get her. But now she wants, she wants a bigger knife yeah. because she's like, oh, I want a bigger knife to, you know, carve to on card. stuff. A what? Yeah, business card. Yeah, exactly. She sounds like she's a future she's, collector. She's a future collector. Yeah. yeah, you can start grooming them now yeah. for, for collecting later. Your daughters, it was hilarious because the other night we were hanging out um, at your uh, your house and yeah. uh, we were out back and um, we, we kind of, th- th- there was like a little pile of wood. There was some like slices of uh, like plywood and boards and stuff. Right. And pretty soon those two little girls had their uh, little boards out and their sword fighting. And then like, we're starting to mess with them and, you know, kind of play fighting a little bit and they're jabbing us or whatnot. And then it's like, we're standing there and then all of a sudden your older daughter, she'd sneak attack from the behind and oh, do yeah. the old dumb and dumber crack on the back of the calves. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were yeah. adorable. She will, she will wreck your world. Oh, she was, yeah, she was aggressive. The young one, the youngest one, she's in a, she does the sneak attack spankings and I don't know, there's something about her hand size and the velocity of that thing, yeah. she will tune you up. Like a two, two, three bullet. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ow, man. And I turn yeah. around and like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. She just runs off and laughs. No, she's cute. They're going to be, they're going to be something special. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously your kids are special. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you, speaking of kids, have you taught your kids how to do this stuff? Yeah. I, my, my son is super interested in it. My older daughters um, have done some stuff. Like my my oldest daughter built a really cool Damascus battle axe for a, a, a history days project in school. That's cool. I mean, it's it's a neat. It's, is it really? It's badass. Yeah. And I sent it to school with her. It's kind is of, it all steel or does it have a wood? Uh, wood it's got handle. a wood handle. Yeah. Yep. Got an ash handle that we burnt. And then we did a Damascus head and mm-hmm. it's got a spike on one side and then the axe head on the other. and. Uh, 
it's kind of funny. Like I was the only kid in school allowed to bring knives to school because mm-hmm. I always bring them and show my teachers. Right. And we still live in an area in the country where like I wrapped it up and sent it to her, you know, put it in her backpack on the bus and was right. like, don't take it out until you get to your teacher, obviously. Right. Like we, we don't need you swinging around, you know, in the yeah. hallway. But uh, no, she made one. Um, uh, my other daughter made a dagger for that same, two years later, she was in history days and she made a really cool little Damascus dagger blade. It's yeah, cool. Um, they help in the Montana Knife Company part. That's what's really cool is, um, you know, they come in, they come into my shop. Like when I worked for my parents, I did time tickets. I filled them out. Like I was an employee, I got paid. And same thing in my Montana Knife Company stuff. They come out, um, even my 11-year-old daughter, she comes out, she signs in just like the other employees do. Um, and I give her tasks like, hey, we need to put boxes together. A lot of the boxes that you buy from Montana Knife Company might look like a kid wrote on the box because... Because was, they did. It was a kid. Right. Um, but I don't force them to go out there. Um, right. It's not... It seems like it's becoming maybe more of a passion for my son. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like anything. Like, your kids probably will be like, eh, yeah, coffee, whatever. Tired of coffee. You know, maybe they'll find a different passion. But maybe as they get older, like, my kids are starting to see what we're building. Right. And I think it's starting to trip. Instead of forcing them to do it at 10 or 11 like I was, maybe at 16 or 17, they're like, hey, this thing dad's doing is pretty cool and these people right. are cool and I want to be involved. And if that's what they want to do, great. But, you know, if they want to do something else, it doesn't matter to me what they do down the road. I'm pretty sure they're going to be successful just because they've had to earn mm-hmm. what they've done. They have 4-H animals, 4-H steers, do they? pigs. And I think that's good because it makes them responsible for something other than themselves. Right. You know. Well, I think um, that, <clears throat> I think you're right. I think, you know, having responsibility at a young age and having, you know, your own business so you can force accountability. My, my kids know personal accountability, accountability from the age of zero, basically. Zero. Yeah. I hold them accountable for everything. And so when they come in, I just try to integrate them into what's happening. So like next, next week when we're at TAC, like they'll be cruising around at TAC and just now, now that they're through, they, they had a cold on the last TAC actually in Big Sky and kind of flowing into this. I don't know if it was from the smoke in the air or what, but just having them around, you know, mm-hmm. talking to people and interfacing with everybody. I think it's like, it's very important uh, just for, you know, raising your kids right. Yeah. Because if you if you spend time with good people like guys like you and you know Bert Soren and all these other people they're positive influences yeah they hear the conversations they hear what we're talking about which is typically you know business or family or hunting or some type of other recreation yeah. yeah 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 and like my son my 13 year old son came to big sky with me um just him and I we stayed in the camper there on site and right. he helped work the booth uh he, I was really proud of him. Like I, you know, I told him, I'm like, you know, you're a representative of our company. We had a chat when we we're coming down and I said, you know, I wasn't worried at all about how he mm-hmm. was going to act, but I'm like, you know, you, you have to represent our family and our company well. And, you know, he was, anytime somebody came to the booth, he stood up, he was shaking people's hands. He was introducing himself. Um, you know, that's kind of, I told him that's kind of our deal too. Like if I'm talking to somebody, I don't introduce you <laughs> introduce yourself because yeah. I, I can't remember his name, but he, he came and shot with us, you know, uh, you know, Logan Stark and Trevor and a bunch of guys from Black Rifle and Sornex. And, 
you know, it's funny when you say that because when I told Hank he was going to get to come to Big Sky with me, the very first thing he asked, he says, do I get to meet Bert Soren? <laughs> <laughs> the Viking? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was like, yeah. And, you know, tra- you know, all these guys that Hank as a 13-year-old boy follows, you know, a lot of, you know, right. your, your people and whatnot. And, um, but he did a great job. He, you know, 100-yard targets, he was moving up to 60 and shooting his bow. And yeah. Teaching those kids how how do you give a little bit of grief to adults, but still be respectful, right. like not disrespectful as a kid and how to, you know, when to shut up, when to talk. And it's just good for him, you know, and it's good. And it also makes him feel like a little bit of a man because mm-hmm. he gets to be involved. And, and I told him, I said, you know, the res- I told him afterwards, the respect you earned this weekend was because of how you acted, not because you're my kid. Because if right. you were a shithead, those people wouldn't talk to you and want they anything wouldn't. to do with you. Mm-hmm. Isaac Sr., um, you know, and Junior were amazing with him. Isaac yeah. Sr. Um, just took him under his wing and every time Hank was shooting, he was, Junior and Senior were showing him tips and Brady and... Right. Hank was getting all these tips from all these men and I was just able to stand back and kind of watch and it was super cool, you know? Yeah, that's the great thing about having a business and then having your family interact with the business. You know, my my wife helped me early on for the first two years and she was bagging coffee and Mm -hmm. doing customer service tickets. And, you know, she earned her stripes and, uh, you know, the kids are going to be the same way. It's like when they get to an age where they can actually contribute, they'll be contribute. Yeah. And if you, if you put them in the warehouse, it's like, you you know, listen to what these people say and you guys teach them up, you know, and, well, because they represent you too. At the end of the day, I think there's going to be zero doubt as to my, you know, where my children land and what they have to do. Because you have to make your own way, right? Mm-hmm. You have to carve your own mark. And regardless of whether or not you know I run this place or whatever's, you know, that that the the social contract or, or the organizational chart, you still start at the bottom. Even the people right. that I've known for years still have to come in and start roasting coffee, printing t-shirts, doing barista work, doing customer service. I always talk to people. I'm like, every Marine is a rifleman, right? There's that saying in the Marine Corps, every Marine is a rifleman. Every person here at Black Rifle is a customer service Mm -hmm. representative because if a customer comes up to you with a problem, regardless of where you work in the company, you still have to be able to solve the problem and be positive, professional, and polite. Solve the problem. Uh, And that's... I mean, it's not like I'm giving life advice. I'm just saying like running a business, integrating your family in the business is already hard enough because you work all the, all the damn time. Right. Just being able to see my kids, I'm sure you're the same way. It's like mm-hmm. just being able to share time with your children at the workplace because sometimes that's the only time I get to share my time. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's important too that kids... Uh, you know, like like with paying my kids, I could easily just be like, hey, I need you guys to help me for a couple hours out here. Sure. Putting boxes together. Uh, you live here. That's part of the deal. Yeah. I mean, I could do that. But um, but instead, by paying them, they they start to realize like, oh, if I work hard, mm-hmm. there's there's something at the end of it. And like with my, my oldest daughter, who's going to be a senior in high school, um, that's kind of what 4-H has been. As I said, you're going to build up some money and then you're going to have money to buy yourself a car. And so a few years ago, she, a knife collector of mine called. He's like, I got this car. It's a really great deal. I'm going to sell it. He's like, I'll make your kid a deal. So he sold it to her for five grand out from out in Oregon, but she wrote the check. Right. And granted, I, 
I subsidize the 4-H stuff a little more than maybe some parents do. Like I, I pay for most of the feed and right. stuff. That I bought their first animal and I pay for most of their feed, especially in the beginning. Um, and instead of just handing them money and putting it in their account, they kind of have to earn it. Right. Now, still a lot of that, a lot of that money in their account's mine, but they had to do something for mm-hmm. it. And so when she bought that car, she protects that thing like it's a diamond because <laughs> yeah. she, that's her money. That's her money. And I told her like, yeah. if you wreck it or you screw it up, like you, you're going to figure out a way to come up with another five grand. Yeah. No, um, you know, the, the easiest dollar you'll ever spend is somebody else's money. Yeah. Just ask the government. Yeah. No shit. <laughs> Just ask no the shit. government. Yeah. You know, that's the way I look at it. I I was amazed, uh, you know, to switch back to some knives, but I was amazed at the work that you do on the knives that you've made, you know, before Montana Knife Company under your your name specifically. Right. And one of the things that we were talking about a couple of days ago is do you still do that type of work mm-hmm. and how many knives a year are you doing like custom under your name specifically? Right. Right now, I'm not as obviously active on building the Josh Smith knives right. because I'm trying to build Montana Knife Company and build this brand. And, yeah. and it's taken off at such a level that it's consuming. It's not Every just bit. making the knives, but how do we grow? Right. How do we expand the business? What do we do about a building? Like all these things for next year and five years from now, right? Which you you understand all that. Um, but yes, I I still build the custom knives. Uh, pro- probably right now I'm on pace this year to build about three. I want to build more down the right. road. And actually, like Brandon, my business partner, said it's important that I keep keep doing yeah. those so people see that it's like when you roast a cup of coffee and you start you do a you do a video about uh, this coffee bean and and how you how you. Uh, you know, do a pour over, mm-hmm. you do whatever. It's like, okay, this guy's not just an executive at a coffee company. Like he knows coffee inside now. No, that's why I brought out the ECS because like, that's my, you know, if, you know, that's my equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. So the Josh Smith label and the small batch, like very custom artisan knife, like this is mine, right? right? So this is like, I get to do this every month where I get to go through and profile the coffees and select them from the origin and, and design the bags from ground up, like everything mm-hmm. that is in that box is something like I have a wet signature on. It's yep. everything in the company actually is my signature on it, but I've been roasting some of these coffees since 2008. I'm not saying you should get bored of them. I just, I I want to continue to develop the craft as well because sure. what's going on in coffee, it's super important that the company's evolving too. And I love that section of the craft. Like, well, the that's why it all started. Art. Yeah, because yeah, you love it. Yeah, it's really fun. I don't get to spend as much time in the roaster, like the sample roasters, as I I would like to. I think eventually I'll get to a point where I can kind of spend much more time there uh, because I've been working on org charts and you know building teams and all the other things that go along with scaling a business. Um, the couple of questions like. Because I'm looking at those knives and I'm seeing so much love, the the so much love and attention to detail. Do you make every piece of those knives? Like, are you? Yeah. There's nothing you're like ordering. Like, are you making the screws? Like, literally everything that goes into it. Um, I don't make the screws, but I decorate. I I like like if you look at my screws, you'll Mm -hmm. see little like file marks and stuff, and like. 
instead of just putting a regular screw and a handle, I'll I'll decorate it, I'll polish it, I'll heat color it a different color. Like I try, even if it's stuff I don't make, which really honestly, the screws are about it. The other thing that I don't do is I don't engrave. So if a, if a guy orders a knife with a bunch of you know say gold or you know wants engraving on the gold or like the steel or whatever. I have certain engravers that I send that out to to do like the scroll engraving or their Western engraving. Right. Um, that's is that whole, all local or do you do it like wherever? Kind of yeah. wherever in, in, here in the U.S. There's mm-hmm. an engraver in Texas. There's a graver in Oklahoma. Um, you know, there's there's two or three guys I use a, a really good guy in Idaho. Right. Um, but besides that, I make everything. Like right. if you if the the guard and the like when I make a switchblade, I mean I'm making the the button that every makes yeah catches it um and that's actually i think what's also cool about montana knife company is like i'm not now i'm getting to a point where i'm not working on every single knife like i was right but i still make i mean i showed you this weekend i have a few prototypes like i make everything by hand a lot of times several times we just put a picture picture on our instagram of like five of these blackfoot blades that i had made originally right um i test them those blades were all heat treated at a different Rockwell hardness. So I could um, test the edge holding ability and stuff. And then I think that's part of why when people pick up our knives, they're like, that feels really good. Like not like a factory knife. And it's like, well, I make it until I get it perfect. And then I have it computer mapped. Right. So when you buy an MKC knife, that's like the exact knife that I originally made. You know, when, um, when are you going to come out with an MKC folder? Probably, hopefully, maybe next year. It, that hopefully, that just, maybe, maybe that that, that, <laughs> that adds a level a level of difficulty. Yeah. You know, and honestly, we're so small. We're just growing, and right. I'm learning too. Like I was a custom knife maker making one knife at a time, and now I'm trying to figure out how to make you know five hundred and a thousand knives, and and of all these different patterns, right. and I need to find help. I need to find somebody I can bring into my shop to run. CNC equipment. Right. And, um, there's such a building process to happen here. Um, we're, we're coming out with chef's knives this fall. Yeah. I'm which super is excited be super for that. Cool. Yeah. And it's that, that whole idea of kind of from the field to the table where you use our, maybe use our Blackfoot knife to get the animal out and yeah. cape it and do all that stuff. But then you're using our chef's knife at hunting camp to right. cook that first backstrap and, you know, with Cole Kramer. Or, yeah. You know, um, and we're coming out with some fleshy knives and some skinny knives, and we're trying to expand our line. Um, but like with the folders, I don't want to do anything. I won't come out with anything until I've got it right. So right. I'd be lying if I if I didn't say I'm playing with like designs and ideas in my shop. Right. But how do you produce that? I can make you one next week. <laughs> now, how do I make yeah. a thousand more? Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Well, that's the exciting thing. I think. With your company, your brand, and what you guys are doing, like the quality of craftsmanship is, it, it's exceptional. I think you're, you know, you're in a category almost by yourself. Uh, now, granted, I think of that in the is is the entire brand itself. So, who's behind the brand? Where is it made? Who are the people you're hiring? What do you believe in? Mm-hmm. You know, looking at the entirety of the company, it's a, it's a very special brand. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, and it's that's something when I when I my business partner Brandon and I hired him originally last year and to do some content, mm-hmm. build me a website. 
And I was explaining to him, this is how I want my company to feel. This is how I want things to look. And this is what I believe in. And I started realizing as we went along, like everything I gave him, kind of tasked him to do, I'd get it back and be like, yes, that's perfect. That's what I want. And so I brought him on as a partner where he's doing that marketing side Mm -hmm. and Instagram and the website and stuff. But I am, you know, they are all American made knives. Like Mm -hmm. I've had several knife makers come to me like, hey man, you can get some killer work done. Like you could have the same knife made in Taiwan and be half the price. And I'm like, I I don't even want to discuss it. Like it's not an option. I will either succeed with an American made Montana knife company. I'll just go back to making my customs. Like I can fold up shop and just make customs the rest of my life and be okay. Mm -hmm. I want a brand. Right. And yeah, they're going to be a little more expensive than a Benchmade or something, you know, another knife, but, um, you know, not the Benchmade. Benchmade great, <laughs> makes great knives too. You yeah. know, there's, there's room for all of us in right. this game. You know, I had, I had a guy this weekend, like pull a Benchmade out and apologize. And I'm like, dude, I, I carry a Benchmade. Like, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't care. Like there's room for all of us, yeah. but it's kind of like um, coffee. It's like, they're, yeah. Like coffee's, uh, you know, it's roasted by some. It's, you know, it's better from some. You know, depending on your taste, right? But I right. drink coffee from across the board from a different companies all the time. Like, don't limit yourself. Like, right. there's so many good brands out there that are doing great things for, you know, their community. I, I tend to try to really give back to like veteran related causes and you know conservation related causes because that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I like to turn you know my customers' dollars into. Besides just, you know cool wood walls. Yeah. You know? And your, your, your company is such an inspiration for us because, you know, I am, I, I, I never served in the military, but I have, you know, grandpas and family that did. And, and we want to be like, we're blatantly clear about how we feel about our mm-hmm. country and our military, our fire and our police. And, um, we're very clear about that on our Instagram and, like we did a fundraiser knife, Brandon Lilly from Storm oh, yeah. and Laura Zara. And yeah. we made a knife this spring where we made a Damascus pattern and I had those guys each make a different pattern and I made a different one and we combined it into one blade and we raffled it off to raise money. And here in just a few weeks, we're being, bringing some veterans to our shop, yeah. about 15 or 20 to our shop to just teach them how to forge and mm. um, cast a fly rod. And we're going to camp outside and Laura's going to teach some That's stuff. Cool. Brandon Lily's going to be there and yeah. flex on everyone, yeah, you know, of course, because he's a monster. But your company and companies like Sornex um, with Bert Soren, they feel like a family. Like, yeah. like when I'm hanging out out here with your employees, um, it's like, I don't hang out with you a lot or Logan, or I've never met Jared or, you know, I just met Matt barely, but your, your employees like love the mission and mm-hmm. love where they work. Bert Soren's people around him and his, like when we go to winter strong and whatnot, it's, it's a family, it's a mm-hmm. community and all these brands supporting each other. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a big giant family. Mm-hmm. Like when you're at TAC, it's whether it's some of the people from Leopold or Eberly Stock, you know, the guys that Eberly Stock, same way the guys Glenn have yeah, are amazing. And, and all of us talk, like mm-hmm. all of us are talking or texting or like, Hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? You know, that's the cool thing about this ecosystem where we've put together a bunch of people that just love America, not we specifically, I'm saying like collective, we, right. uh, you know, we're all working together and it's, yeah. it is, you're right. It's, it's a big family where we, like, I get excited because I get to go see people like John, you know, John Dudley and Bert Soren. Andy yep. will be down here next week. 
at Snowbird for that tack. And these are my friends or my family. I, yeah. I freaking, I love it. And, um, and for me, it's not like I'm, I'm building a brand that I want to be around. Like I yeah. want it to be around. I want my son and daughters to be running this thing years from now or grandkids or whatever. And it's all going to be built on relationships, mm-hmm. the money side and the business stuff like that will work itself out and come. It's more about, and, and I think that's why people are buying in because mm-hmm. they can, I'm very clear on my Instagram showing like, Hey, we're a small family doing this and we're trying to grow. Um, but we couldn't do it without the people that are buying our knives and supporting us one knife at a right. time. Um, but it's, it's more of a feel of, of community and family. And like Lucas, Lucas could easily have told you, um, you know, like, oh yeah, he's all right. Josh's all right. But yeah. like, he could have tried to hoard all the Black Rifle Coffee, <laughs> you know, customers and everybody to yeah. Grizzly Forge, right? It's and not, it's not how... No. And it's not the community I grew up in. I was right. used to, in the knife world, we all lifted each other up. And yeah. when I remember standing there at my table and Tim Hancock, who's passed away, he would, you know, bring a collector over and be like, hey, check out this kid's knives. And I remember doing that several times where I had folding knives on my table, Damascus folders, and a guy'd walk up and be like, I need a hunting knife. Like, can you make me a hunting knife? Well, I'm pretty backed up in orders, but like, let's go check out. This guy's really good. Right. Like, show you him. And it's like, really? You're going to show me your competition? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's not. Business isn't fun without competition. Well, Josh, tell me where everybody can find you if they want to order MKC knife or. Josh Smith knife or however we want to. Yeah. I mean, we have the Montana knife company.com our website and Instagram at Montana knife company. Um, you know, I have my own personal Instagram, Josh Smith knives. Right. Uh, you, you, you get a little bit more of a feel of the family life and stuff. Brandon kind of keeps me off the MKC on the feed of, uh, you know, if I need to rant on something political, (laughs) you know, yeah, same thing, you know, Yeah. 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 I get a little wound up once in a while, <laughs> but, uh, and I have my, my website, Josh cool. Smith knives, where you can kind of see my customs and yeah, no, I, uh, I really appreciate it, man. It's, oh, yeah, uh, dude, it's awesome. It's I, a cool uh, I love having you here. We'll do another one. I Thanks, appreciate buddy. it. All right. Thanks. Bye. concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Jump titties, boy!